Listen, big thank you to Chelsea for organising all the um, Christmas stuff. We love all that. When I was actually in the Philippines, I went into um, one of the rooms, it was one of their big storerooms, and like their whole room was filled with these big boxes that said Operation Christmas Child on the side. And I'm like, oh, sweet, we give to those. We, we do that. And they're like, oh, we absolutely love it. And she was telling me, Nadine, it's the pastor's wife that oversees it, and they actually go out um, to all the street kids. They do exactly what they said on the, uh, on the screen. They pull all these kids together. They might do three or 400 kids at a time. They'll do a VBS week with them. And then on a Friday night, they'll give them this shoebox, and that's why they invite them to a weekly time so they can hear about Jesus. So these shoeboxes really do make a difference. I've seen it in all reality how they do. So please give towards that. It's a great opportunity. All right, well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 6, please. I'd really love it if you could be praying for um, the team over the next couple of weeks. Next weekend, we head to the United States uh, for the annual pastors' conference. And so please be praying for us, myself and Patrick and Riley and Brendan. We're also going to be joined by some of the core team, which is really neat. So Janelle and Ollie have already gone early. Such a hardship to go to America for like three weeks. So and they've gone early. Andrew Lung's coming. Um, Simon Walker is coming. Who else is coming? Other people are coming. Glenn Jones is coming. Who's that? Oh, yeah. That? Oh, Charlotte's coming. So please note, listen, for all the people that aren't a part of the pastoral team, they're, they're covering their own costs for this. They ain't, you ain't paying for that. So that's a huge investment into um, us as a, as a group and as a team to seek to lead you as best we can. And please be praying for us. Please also be praying for me. I go on Friday. I go early. I'm with Eric Tabetsky's church in Orange and spending some time on the Sunday looking at the church, the dearest place on earth, and will seek to preach my heart out on your behalf to envision them and what the local church really is. When I arrive at the conference then, my wife thinks I go to Disney. I don't even see Disney. I see Florida when I go from the airport to the hotel. I'm in the hotel the whole time, and then I go to the hotel to the airport, and I come home. What I'm actually doing is for four days, the first two days, we've got a pre-conference. I'm doing an Asia-Pacific and Africa conference for Sovereign Grace. There's about 50 of us. We'll be spending time at God's Word. Um, I'm then doing a global dinner for about 100 um, pastors that are Sovereign Grace that are all outside the States. And then every meal, whether it's breakfast, lunch, mid-afternoon, dinner, or after the meeting, I've been meetings. So please be praying for sustenance for that and wisdom for that. Sometimes, um, in my role personally, when you're making big decisions about what is going to actually happen in a country, whether we're going to do it or not, and you're aware this has massive implications for them and the future of sovereign grace in that country, and the reality is you do feel a massive responsibility with that. And so please be praying for me that God would give me wisdom and grace to know what to do that we may take the gospel out in our countries and out in our world. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 3. We are presently in a series on the book of Exodus, which you will tell by the big banner at the back. And we're presently in the part of the story where God speaks to Moses from the burning bush. God has heard the cries of his people. He's seen what they've gone through in Egypt. He's aware of what they're struggling with. He's remembered his covenant with them and he's coming after them and he wants to call Moses to be his spokesperson. He is, humanly speaking, going to be the one that is going to speak to Pharaoh and Egypt and demand that he lets God's people go. Well, Moses then encounters God in the burning bush and they start a conversation and it is an interesting conversation. Last week we studied just three verses. This week we are studying about 30 verses, so it's going to take us some time. We're going to go from chapter 3, verse 16 through to the end of chapter 4, 17. We're going to start reading in chapter 3, verse 9. These are the, this is the conversation that Moses has with God in the burning bush. Chapter 3, verse 9. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the, the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you, Moses, that I have sent you. Whom you have brought, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? 
What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, Moses. And you and the elders of Israel should go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in a house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered God, But behold... They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. They will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign that they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Let's pray. Lord, whether we be studying three verses or many, our desire is that we would understand more of you and understand what it is that you want to show us. Lord, your word is truly great as you are great. And so, Lord, would you open our eyes today to behold the wonders of your word. Lord, speak to us in your precious name. Amen. Now, for all of us here, there are many times, I think, at least it's true of me, but I think it's true of you. There are many times in our lives when I think God calls us to do something that for whatever reason we instantly know is going to be really, really hard. 
I think for all of us, we go through those things, don't we, where we know we've read something in the Bible or we've had the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and we know God is wanting us to do something and yet straight away we're not filled with, oh great, we're filled with, oh gosh, how am I going to do that? How can I possibly, how can I possibly manage that? I think it's what the young mum goes through of a small child who's fine for a time, but then is aware, I cannot manage another day. I cannot manage another night where they're not sleeping. I don't want to see another nappy ever again in my life. I'm done. It's the cry of a single who knows that they've been called by God, at least right now, to be single. They understand it's a gift, although that seems complex in their mind. And they want to, as 1 Corinthians 7 says, they want to invest this time for the Lord to be undevoted, undivided attention and totally devoted time just for the Lord. And yet nonetheless, even as they do that, and they know that's God's call on their life, it is hard for them. It's difficult. It's the cry of a student who's battling a specific area of sin. And it's a battle. The world is lying to them. Their hearts are lying to them. Their bodies crave that very thing that they know God is telling them not to participate in. And it's hard. It's difficult. It's difficult not to go and indulge in the very thing God has said not to indulge in. It's the cry of the young adult who's aware they may need to have a hard conversation with a friend. Maybe somebody who doesn't know the Lord. And they're aware, I need to share the gospel with them. But it's it's hard. And maybe that friend is a Christian, and yet they're not following God's word. They're not following God's clear command on their lives according to this word. And the Christian knows, I'm going to have to go speak to them. God's calling me to speak to them. And yet, it's hard. For all of us, there are many times in our lives when God calls us to do something that for whatever reason we instantly know is going to be really, really hard for us. And all those things, and indeed more, are simply reflections of the circumstances that Moses finds himself in right here. I mean, put yourself in Moses' bare feet for a moment. This is hard for him. He's standing before the burning bush. God is addressing him, and God's letting him know, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt. He's clear on the call of God on his life. He just doesn't like it. I mean, Lord, you have got the wrong guy. I'm never going to be able to manage doing that. I understand what you're asking me to do, but there's no way. I used to be a prince of Egypt, but look at me now. I'm just a shepherd. I got nothing. The last time I was in Egypt, I was run out by the very people you want me to go back to talk to to let them know that you're going to be saving them. The last communication I ever had with an Israelite was them saying, who made you prince and judge over us? Well, I'm the wrong guy. Maybe right place, right time, wrong person. Moses is overwhelmed with what God is calling him to do. Utterly overwhelmed. Yet there's something we learn in this passage that is not just for Moses. I think it's for each and every believer in the room. And it's this. That when God calls us to do something, he always supplies all that we need. That's the point. That's the point of all those verses. That when God actually calls you as an individual to do something, when God commands you to do something from this word, when he addresses your soul and gives you a call on your life, he always, always supplies all that you need. And my friends, when you see it, it's simple, but it is brilliant. This should be incredibly encouraging to each and every believer in the room. Each and every believer in the room that is aware there are a number of things that God has called me to that I simply say, it's too hard. The amount of mums that I speak to at different times that are just saying, it's too hard. Yes. In and of yourself, it is too hard. But what God calls you to, he always supplies all that you need to get the job done. So what is it that he supplies to Moses? What is it that he supplies to 
us? What is this promise that we can grasp that is here and running through all of Scripture? What is it that God supplies to us when he calls us to something? Well, three things, and here's the first. It's all in this text. Number one, he gives us himself. It's brilliant. He gives him, he gives us, him. He says, I'll be with you. I've called you to it, Moses. I'll be with you. So you won't, you'll, you'll have realized, I'm sure, in this text, Moses is pushing back like a lot, don't you think? He actually does it five times. Five times, God keeps talking to him. He keeps telling him things. Each and every time, Moses is like, nah, 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 nah. It, it's just what he does all the time. He's overwhelmed. There's five times. He actually asks five questions, five objections, all the way through this text. It's a theme running through the text. So I wanted to start in verse 9. Five questions, five opposing comments to God. All God is saying to him is, Moses, I'm going to send you. Well, then Moses begins. Question 1, chapter 3, verse 11. He says, but Lord... Who am I? Look at it there. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I mean, as Moses stands before the burning bush with God talking about the burning bush, his first point is, Lord, you have got the wrong bloke. I mean, it ain't going to work out. Egypt is the mightiest nation on earth. I'm a shepherd. I've got nothing to offer. There is no way I'm going to be able to do what you want me to do. I've been there before. I even tried before, Lord. I tried. I saw an Egyptian taskmaster attempting to kill one of your people. So I killed him, thinking that the Israelites would stand in awe and say, Oh, this is Moses. He's come to help us. But they didn't. They simply said, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Lord, I was run out of town For the last 40 years, I've been in the wilderness. I'm the wrong guy. Just a shepherd. I got nothing. And God answers him in verse 12. Notice what he doesn't say to him. He doesn't say to Moses, Oh, no, Moses. Mo, you are totally the guy. Moses, for the last 40 years, I've been training you. Moses, listen, let me bring you in on your life. Moses, your living situation, your family situation, your work situation. It was all the divine setup, Mo. It was all me. Your family situation. Did you ever wonder why your father-in-law was a priest? Did you ever wonder why I arranged that for you? I arranged it so that you would be, start to be introduced to me. Moses, did you ever wonder why your living situation was 40 years wandering around the desert? It's because that's what you're going to do with my people, Mo. And Moses, did you ever consider why I made you to be a shepherd? It's because you're going to be leading two million sheep for the next 40 years of your life. They're going to be people, but they're going to be just like sheep, Mo. No, he doesn't say any of those things. They would all be true. He actually just says, Moses, you think you're the wrong guy. Listen, I will be with you. Because Moses, it's not about you. It's about me. It's not about your gifts and abilities. Otherwise, you would receive the glory. Moses, it's about my gifts and abilities. Moses, I will be with you. Well, Moses then asks him his second objection, his second question in chapter 313. He says, but Lord, who are you? If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? It's an understandable question. As I said last week, it's going to appear a little odd for Moses to just rock up with Pharaoh and the people of God and say, hey, listen, I was having to chat to him, well, like a bush. I was speaking to a bush, and the bush spoke and said, it's going to be really, really odd. So Moses is simply saying, but Lord, who do I tell them has sent me? Say I do go, which I'm not inclined to go, but say I do, who who has sent me? And God tells Moses, Moses, this is my name. I am who I am. And as we saw last week, there is so much in that name. God is telling Moses in that moment, Moses, I'm above and beyond you in every way. Moses, I'm greater than creation. I'm greater than the nations. I'm greater than even the greats. And Moses, I'm independent and self-sufficient in every way. For each and every person that has ever existed must say, I am by the grace of God who I am. But Moses, not me, I am. 
Even this bush, Moses, that I'm speaking you from is not being consumed. I don't even need the wood of its trees to burn. I am who I am. Moses, I'm above and beyond you in every way. Moses, I'm independent and self-existent. And Moses, I will never change. I was the God of your forefathers. I am the God of the future. Moses, I am who I am. And Moses, I will be with you. I am is with you, Moses. He then tells him in chapter 3, verse 16, Listen, Moses, go then and tell the elders of Israel. Go gather them and talk to them. And Moses, the elders of Israel, they will listen to you. They will believe you. And they will go to the king with you. Moses, go and tell them. Because they will listen. Well, notice then the audacity of his third question in chapter 4, verse 1. God has just told him the elders will listen to you. Chapter 4, verse 1. And Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Is that audacious or what? When he arrived at the burning bush, he's taking off his sandals. He's overwhelmed. He can't even look at God. He's so overwhelmed. It appears now his back is straightened a little bit. Well, God, I hear you telling me that they will listen to me. I'm letting you know they ain't. It is audacious. He's in effect calling God in this moment, I don't think deliberately, but in effect he's calling God in this moment a liar or incompetent. Any which way, it is a wonder that the holiness of God in the burning flames doesn't strike him down in this moment. How dare he call God a liar? But behold also the grace of God and the mercy of God. Moses is being audacious before the Lord. God is gracious back. Moses I'm going to give you three signs then. I'm going to give you three visible manifestations of my power to help you. So Moses, I'm going to turn your staff into a serpent. Let's go through that. I'm going to make your hand leprous and then clean again. And Moses, I'm going to show you how to turn water into blood. And these signs, as we discovered, no doubt they are for Pharaoh and they are for the elders. But more than anything in the context of the scripture, what you realize is these signs are for Moses. That to help him know that God is with him. Moses, they will listen to you. And Moses, here's these signs. Look, use them. Moses, I am with you. At which point Moses pulls out what he thinks is the trump, trump card, namely a speech impediment. Chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I mean, it's getting a bit lame and a bit embarrassing by now, but that's his point. He's like, listen, okay, well, you know, I get into who you are. I understand who I am. It's not very impressive, but you'll be with me. Listen, that's really neat. And you give me some things to do. I like that. But Lord, you may have made a bit of an error. I've got a speech impediment. I can't even speak. I can't even do this very well. I mean, it's embarrassing. But this is what he tries. So God then makes it clear to him in verse 11 and 12. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, Moses? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses, I'm the God of mouths. Moses, you don't need to fear. When I'm calling you to something, I'm going to help you. Moses, trust me, for through my hand, I will guide your mouth. You have nothing to fear, Moses. I will be with you. What I call you to, I will supply all your needs. I will be with you. So then Moses just lets it out. His fifth and final question, his fifth and final objection, he just gets straight to the point, verse 13. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Well, at least we finally got to the truth. Isaiah, when he stands before the Holy One of Israel, says, Here I am, send me. Moses stands before the burning bush. Here I am, send someone else. That's what's going on here. Moses is overwhelmed by what God is calling him to do. I can't do it. You've got the wrong guy. This is just too hard for me. 
To which point God, in his grace then, once again, supplies what he needs. He sends him his brother Aaron. And he says the following to him, Moses, you shall speak to him, meaning your brother, and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as a God to him. Moses, I've heard all your objections. But Moses, I will be with you. It is obvious when you look at this text as a whole that Moses is wetting himself. Moses is overwhelmed by what God is calling him to do and his instant reaction is, Lord, I'll never be able to do it. This is just too hard. What you're calling me to do, I will never be able to manage. I just can't do it. And what God says to him again and again and again and again is, Moses, yes you can because I will be with you. It's me, Moses. What I've called you to do, it will happen through me. It is too hard for you in the natural. But Moses, nothing is impossible for me when I am with you. And Moses, I'm going to be with you. Moses, I will always be with you. My friends, the good news of this text is that all reality for all those that know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this truth is true for you as well. When God calls you to do something for him, he always provides all that you need. And the first thing he gives you to that end is himself. He's been doing it all the way through Scripture. It's a theme, not only in Exodus, but just in almost every book of the Bible. You engage with this type of theme. And so when Joshua inherited the mantle of leadership off Moses, God promises him in Joshua 1 verse 5, listen, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you, Joshua. He then says the same when he makes a promise to Gideon. Gideon is too timid to lead the troops into battle. Gideon is overwhelmed with, Lord, I will never be able to manage winning any battle ever on your behalf. To which God replies to Gideon in Judges chapter 6, verse 16, Oh, yes, you will. Because I will be with you. God then promises Jeremiah. Jeremiah gets called to be a prophet. He's incredibly young at the time. And so God comforts him in Jeremiah 1, verse 8. Jeremiah, do not be afraid. Because I am with you. And then his disciples, you fast forward all the way to the disciples. He speaks to the disciples, listen. He's ascended as the risen Christ. And he says to the disciples, I want you to go. Go therefore into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Oh, and lo, I will be with you till the end of the age. Do you see the theme? All the way through, when God calls us to something, he's there. When he calls us to something, I'll be with you. This is what I want you to do, I'll be with you. This is what I want you to do, I will be with you. It's a theme that runs all the way through the Bible because God wants to get our attention to realize this is the same for you. When he calls us to something, he always supplies all that we need. Because when he calls us to do something from his word that we instantly react with, it's just going to be too hard, it's too hard, it's too hard. His answer is, but I'll be with you. I'll be with you. It's one of the things I love about John chapter 14 when Jesus himself says, you know what? In a little while I'm going to be gone. But I want you to know as disciples and for anybody that follows you, for those that love me, both me and the Father will make our home in them. Do you know what, church? What that really means is in a mysterious and incredible way, each and every one of us who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior has a part of the burning bush living in your life. He's there. He's with you. I've called you to this. I'm with you. I've called you to this task. I'm with you. When God calls us to do something, he always supplies all that we need. We see it with Moses. It's there to help us see it's true for us as well. But that's not all God supplies us. He also supplies us, number two, he gives us 
elders. Something that's really easily missed. See, without doubt, when we're called to do something by the Lord, we need the Lord, don't we? The first thing we need each and every time is God himself. Lord, if I'm going to pull this off, what you're calling me to do, more than anything, I'm going to need you. And yet more often than not, what we also need is someone to be the Lord to us, don't we? Somebody to lead us, somebody to care for us, somebody to help us see God's word, somebody to encourage us, somebody to correct us where necessary. We need the Lord, but we need someone to be the Lord to us. That's what Moses needed. And so what did God give Moses? Elders. Look at verse 16. Easily missed, but important. Chapter 3, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring to you, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. Well, well, I never. I never saw that in any movie. You know, in all the different movies that I've ever seen about Egypt, who's standing there before Pharaoh? Moses, with his staff. Here I am. Is there anybody with him? Sometimes Aaron standing off in the corner. Any elders? Negative. But the actual story says, Moses, I'm going to send you, and I want you to gather the elders of Israel, and I want you to talk to them about what I've told you. And Moses, guess what? They're going to believe you. And they are going to go with you, Moses. You're all going to go together to Pharaoh. And you're going to speak on all their behalf. And so the actual scene is Moses with Aaron actually doing the talking because Moses has got a speech impediment and too nervous about it. So Aaron's going to do the talking. Moses is going to be by his side. And all around them is going to be the elders of Israel. He said, I'm with that guy. I'm with him. We're here to encourage him. We're here to honor him. We're here to show our solidarity with him. We're here to represent the people of Israel. We are with him. See, we learn something here that is quite simply not in the movies, namely that the elders are all around and all involved in this as well. And what we learn here then from the text and not from the movies is the importance and worth and value of elders and elderships dictated to us by God himself, even here, right early on, in the early stages of the people of God. We're at the start of the book of Exodus, and we're already seeing elders leading God's people. We so easily think of prophets, priests, and kings. Behold, Exodus chapter 3, elders. God knows that we need men in our lives to help lead us, to help encourage us, to help protect us. Moses needed it. And the church still needs it today. Because in the same way elders oversaw the people of God all the way through the Old Testament, when the people of God went from Israel to the church, the church made up of every tribe and language and nation, both Jew and Gentile alike, God remained having elders. Elders to lead people. Elders to care for people. Elders to protect people. Elders to teach people as the people of God. You know, I became an elder or a pastor, which is what I usually call it. Elders and pastors are just interchangeable words. They're two different facets of exactly the same office. I became a pastor when I was 24, um, 18 years ago now. And I remember um, when I first became a pastor, walking into a hairdresser's, and them asking me, you know, you, you're chatting away and you're hanging out and, when she got into the conversation of, so what do you do for a living? And I said, oh, I'm a pastor. And the hairdresser said, oh, really? Oh, yeah, we had one of those around the house a while ago. They did swirly bits on the walls and on the ceilings. And I said, no, that's a plasterer. Um, I'm actually a pastor. At which point I knew what was coming. She just went, oh, right. 
so you're going on holiday anywhere this year? And just moved on. It's just like, you know, because she had no clue what I meant. A pastor, what on earth is one of them? It was, the same would have happened if I said an elder. She would just like, what, like a Star Wars or something? You know, there's just, nobody understands. Most people don't understand what it means to be an elder or a pastor. She didn't have a clue. And yet I submit to you so often in the local church, I think neither do we. We just don't get it. I mean, what are elders, what are pastors meant to be doing? It's like when my Liam tells people, oh, my dad just works Sundays. They're like, no, no. Listen, Sunday's just the tip of the iceberg. It's a week. But so often I think we don't understand what, what pastors do. But pastors and elders, they're called and set aside by God to do many things in the context of the church. They're called to lead the church, first and first and foremostly. So the Bible calls pastors to rule and manage and to exercise oversight. That's why Romans 12 verse 8 says that those who are called and set apart for this role need to lead with zeal. Why? Because these are the people of God. These are the people that God died for, that he sent his son. So if you're going to lead them, son, lead them with zeal. Move my people forward. Manage them, rule them, exercise oversight them, and do it with zeal. He also calls pastors to nourish the church. Jesus himself called Peter in John chapter 21, verse 17, to Peter, feed my sheep. It's the primary role of pastors. It's not their only role. They're also called to lead, as we just mentioned. But they are called to feed. Peter was the first pastor ever lived. He was the one in which God was going to build his local church, the very first ordained pastor. And yet each and every ordained pastor after has all been called to go feed my sheep, nourish them, teach them from my word. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so pastors, lead my people. Nourish my people. doesn't matter what you think, but tell them what I think. Tell them what I declare. Tell them what I want them to know from this word. Pastors are also called to equip the church. In a healthy church, leaders equip and people minister. That's why I don't like being called a minister. We're all ministers. I'm an equipper. I equip the saints, Ephesians 4, for works of ministry. We together build the local church. We all have a part to play. It's a body. But pastors are called to equip the church. And pastors are also called to protect the church. Protect your church from the dangers and snares that come from the evil one. You're aware of that? You're aware that there's one in this world, Satan, who hates your guts? And that elders, in part, are called to insert themselves on that reality and seek to protect you from that reality by making you aware of his reality in your life and in our world. We're called to protect you from the dangers and snares of the evil one, the dangers and snares from the world, a world which so readily wants to distract you away from following Jesus, and the dangers and snares that come from within. Sometimes pastors need to insert themselves in people's lives to protect them from themselves. That is why we read the following in Hebrews 13, verse 17. And it's no wonder, given the reality of what pastors are called to do, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. You know, that is probably the most un-Australian verse in the entire Bible. But there's times when our culture needs to come in line with God's word and not rule the day. God has put men over our lives. What for? I don't like the thought of anybody being over my life. I'm Australian. Well, listen. You need to listen and have a disposition to follow your elders. Why? Well, because they're assigned by me as God to watch over their souls. He's not talking there about policing. 
He's not talking about just watch over their souls. Oh, God, tut, tut, I can't believe they're doing that. No, he's saying, listen, be like me to them. Care for them. Be bothered about them. And watch over their souls. Oh, and listen, as they do that, be aware that they will give an account to God himself, the burning bush, for how they've done that. So obey your leaders and submit to them. It doesn't mean, you know, when they tell you to do something, say, oh, yes, sir, no. But what it is saying is have a disposition to follow your leaders. Why? Because they're there as a gift of grace to watch over your souls, to lead you and teach you and protect you and care for you and equip you. And one day they'll stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords for how they've done. And make no mistake, they're going to be taking that pretty seriously. You know, I thank God for the many pastors that I've had in my life over the last 42 years of being on this earth. Because I genuinely don't know where I would be without the involvement in pastors in my life up to this point. I don't know where I'd be. I don't know where I'd be without their teaching. Everything I'm teaching you, it has not come from me. I'm not even that bright. I didn't win the award like Riley does at Pastors College. I just tried to pass. Everything I have learned, I've learned from somebody else. I thank God for men that gave themselves to this word, to studying this word, so that I could be fed by them and understand the word and God and his greatness and my life so much better. I don't know where I'd be without that. I haven't always believed everything I've believed. I had big issues with many things that I came across that I'd now teach as fact. I struggled with them, and it was only because pastors took the time to say, hey, let's look at that together. Let's spend time in that. Would it change my life? I don't know where I'd be without that. I don't know where I'd be without pastoral care. Times when I've needed encouragement, and I've received it off a pastor. Times when I've needed correction, and I've received it off a pastor. Times when I needed a pickup, thinking about throwing in the towel, and I've received it from a leader in my life. I don't know where I'd be without their protection, more often than not from myself. I don't know where I'd be without pastors helping me see the framework of how the world is working and how the Bible speaks into those things and the dangers in common culture. I don't know where I'd be because I'd be sucked into quite a few of them automatically. Because I'm like, Tigger, Woo-hoo, this looks good. You know, I'd naturally be that way inclined. I thank God for men that would say, hey, listen, I know that looks good, but have you thought about this? Whoa, okay, no. And I don't know where I'd be without pastors that have counseled me over many years of my life. See, I've always, personally, been aware that pastors are there to watch over my soul. And so when it comes to any type of bigger decision in my life, the first person... After speaking to my wife about the thought, I want to speak to pastors. Hey guys, I'm aware that you're called by God to oversee my soul, and so I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And I don't know what you think pastors are going to say to you in that moment, but here's what they're not going to say. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, no, don't do it. They're not going to do that at all. What I've been on the receiving end of for many years is pastors saying, hey listen, well why do you think that? What does Emma think about that? Well, listen, we're praying for you and we're for you. Here's a few texts that you might want to think about. And listen, as elders, we've probably got quite a bit of experience on things, so we've seen trends over many years. And so here's a few things to consider. But listen, we're praying for you, bud. Let's see what God does. I'm grateful for that. And I don't know where I'd be without that over many years. Listen, here's the question for you. When you think of your pastors, who do you perceive them to really be? Do you see them as gifts from God to you to watch over your souls? Or do you see them as a hindrance, a bit of a pain? Or do you see them to somebody who's just like, well, look, I expect you to preach, but I don't want you to get involved in my life or nothing. Or do you see them as something else? I want to encourage you, do not look a gift of grace in the mouth. 
and then just run away. God has given us pastors as a gift because he does call us to things that are hard. And so first and foremost, he gives us himself and then he gives us elders. Elders to teach and encourage and help and protect and aid and care. And that's not all he gives us. Third and finally, he gives us a sign. He gives us a sign. And he actually gave Moses three. (laughs) This guy was particularly weak, particularly nervous, particularly overwhelmed by what God is calling him to do. So, hey, I'm going to give you, sunshine, I'm going to give you three signs that I am indeed with you. He says this in verse 1, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What's in your hand? He said, A staff. He said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. This verse minimally proves that Moses is practically British and because he runs from the serpent. I mean, the serpent becomes a real snake, and he's like, <laughs> and it's like, I relate to that. I understand that. But it's a sign. He would have been no doubt overwhelmed by the sign. I mean, just a, a useless piece of information, which I found interesting in the Hebrew, where it says, put your hand out. When God says to him, put your hand out, it means put your hand out and catch him firmly. And when Moses did put his hand out and catch him, it's a different Hebrew word, which literally means I put my hand out and I grabbed him cautiously. He didn't do exactly what God asked him to do. He's so afraid of this snake, which I can understand. But it was a sign to Moses. Moses, you'll be able to do this with the elders. You'll be able to do this with Pharaoh and Moses. It's a sign that I'm with you, son. And he gives him another sign, verse 6 and 7. It says, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Listen, all these things are steeped in like lots of really good things that I'm battling not to tell you all about. But they'll come in future weeks. They're all different symbols of different things. It's, it's significant that it's a snake. It's significant that it's leprous. It's significant that it's going to be blood. But you can imagine the scene. Moses is like, okay, put it in my cloak. Yeah, don't mind if I do. And pulls it out. Whoa! Uh, I've got leprosy. Okay, so pop it back in your cloak. Okay, it's clean again. This is a sign, Moses. I'm going to be with you. And then he shows him, listen, if, if in doubt, Moses, take a cup of water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, and I'll turn it into blood. Moses, all these are signs for Pharaoh. They're signs for the elders. But Moses, they're signs for you. You're asking me, well, I'll really be with you. Here, here's a sign for you to know that I'll be with you. God graciously gave Moses three signs. And God in his grace 2,000 years ago gave us the ultimate sign. He gave us the ultimate sign that all this is true. He gave you and I the ultimate sign that I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll hem you in both behind and before. I'll watch over your coming and going. I won't even allow your foot to to, to slip. Listen, surely, goodness and mercy, it will follow you all the days of your life. How do you know? How do you know? Well, I'll give you a sign. And the sign will be my son. Jesus. Jesus in his life proved that he was God again and again. Revealing that he had authority over nature. That he had authority over sickness. That he had authority over demons. That he had authority even over death. And then in his death he claimed. He claimed time and time again, listen, in my death... I can give you life and that in abundance. Through my death, I can make a way for you to be forgiven of your sin and redeemed to God and adopted into his very family where he will care for you all the days of your life. Through my death, I'm making a way for the sending of the Holy Spirit. Me, myself, who will come in the form of a spirit and reside in you. 
And through my death, I'll make a way for the Father to keep you all the way until your future beckons and heaven will be your home. That was his claim in death again and again and again. And three days later, after he died, he rose again to reveal to you, it's true. I told you it was true. I told you I'd never leave you nor forsake you. I told you you could be forgiven. I told you you could be redeemed. I told you you could be adopted. I told you that heaven could be your home. All this is true. Because not even death could hold him. My friends, when he rose again three days later, it was a sign that Jesus is he. And it's a sign in each and every page in this book Every last bit of it is all true. Whatever God calls you to from this word, it's all true. Because all the time it's here to help you see, this is what I want you to do. And lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. I'll never leave you. Never forsake you. For you are a son and daughter of the king. And so I'll never leave you. My friends, for all of us, there are many times in our lives where God calls us to do something that in the natural is really, really hard for us, isn't there? Many times. We all go through things. We all walk through seasons where we're like, this is just so hard. What this text teaches us is that when God calls us to do something, he always supplies all that we need. He gives us himself and he gives us elders and he gives us a sign whose name is Jesus that all of it is true. So my friends, I want to encourage you then. Trust him. Trust him. And keep moving forward in whatever it is he's called you to. And in him, may we always find a sweet, sweet peace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you really are a great God. You are the great I am, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who will never change. And Lord, we see you so wonderfully displayed and disclosed to us in the book of Exodus. Lord, I thank you then and stand in wonder of you that you not only know our names, but you've called us to such a time as this. And you've called us with a promise. I am with you. Lord, would we never move on from that reality in our lives? But would we always be amazed that you're with us? We're never alone. We're never by ourselves. Even the call that you've put on our life in specifics, whether it be just singleness or a difficult marriage, or hard parenting, or a significant trial, or a difficult conversation, or an outreach that we know we need to do, but are finding ourselves so fearful. Thank you that whatever it is that you've called us to, you will supply everything, everything that we need. How kind you are, Lord. For you indeed go with us. So may we find sweet, sweet peace in you. In Jesus' name, amen.